Due to the graphic nature of the personal accounts and content discussed in this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Many episodes will include graphic personal accounts and discussions of child sexual assault, domestic violence, physical abuse, rape, sexual situations, and suicide. Welcome to Latter-day Survivors. I'm Christina. I'm here co-hosting with Kendra today, and we're excited to have Elena Maiello here as our guest with us today. Um, Elena is an award-winning documentary film director and producer who is also doing some work for HBO Max, and she's currently finishing up production on a documentary titled Chewed Gum, which exposes the inordinately high rates of sexual assault and domestic violence in the state of Utah. Uh, the trailer for Chewed Gum has been making the rounds on social media this week and has been shared a lot. Lots and lots of people are excited to see this film uh, come about uh, because it has a really incredibly important message. Um, we met Elena, I think through Instagram. Uh, she connected with us and then we were able to see the trailer to her film and have been really excited about it ever since. So Elena is herself a survivor of sexual assault. Um, and uh, we're happy to have her here with us to tell her story. So welcome, Elena. Thank you so much, Christina. It's so nice to be here. And I'm so incredibly grateful for the support that you've been both been giving me. Um, it, I'm, I was so excited to find the account Latter-day Survivors. I think it's incredible to see the collection of the stories and to see so many people coming forward to share what they've experienced in one place so that we can have it documented. So I'm extremely happy, honored, and so grateful to be here. Awesome, well, we're super excited to have you. Um, I think we'll just give you the floor and let you tell your story however you want to tell it. Okay, great. Um, is it, my audio is okay? I just wanted to check, Kendra. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Um, okay, so, I mean, it started... <clears throat> Everything started when I was kind of in high school. So I actually grew up as a Catholic um, and I grew up playing playing golf and I wanted to play golf in college. It was my dream. Ever since I was eight years old, I wanted to play golf in college and it was something my father and I did together and I practiced all the time. And so my senior year of high school, BYU sent me a letter 
and they started recruiting me and they, their golf team was ranked, I think in the top 15 in the entire country for division one golf. Um, and so I was really, really impressed by that. And I was like, okay, well I'll go and visit. I went and visited, you know, it was in April. There was still snow on the mountains. Everyone seemed so friendly and wonderful. It, I, I, there was just something that kind of drew me to BYU and I felt very welcomed there. And I had been a pretty, you know, religious Catholic girl. I had gone to an all girls Catholic high school. So I was very familiar with religious schools and I thought BYU would, wouldn't be very different. Um, and I had never really met any Mormons. Um, and then when I was getting recruited by BYU, I met a few Mormons that lived kind of down the street from me and they were, you know, kind of encouraged me, show me some BYU videos. And so that made me feel better about going. And I decided to go to BYU to play golf. So um, I get there. I remember it was about, it was August, 2005. And I get to the dorms. I was in Helaman Hall, you know, um, Chipman was my dorm. Um I remember being so amazed by the cafeteria food. Everyone was so friendly, but it was a total culture shock for me because I, growing up in California, I had never been around this many Mormons and it was a, it was very different. I, people could tell when they first met me that I wasn't Mormon. I think maybe because of what I was wearing, you know, sometimes my shoulders were showing or my midriff and sometimes I was cursing a little bit. So people could kind of tell and they could would quickly ask me, oh, have you ever read the Book of Mormon? Would you like to read the Book of Mormon? And <laughs> it just became very obvious quickly that I was different. Um, and that started to make me feel a little bit nervous. You know, I was like, oh, this is a little different than I thought it would be. Um, and I knew, I had known about the honor code beforehand. You know, it was very clear what the rules of the honor code was were. And I had never really you know, I never really partied in high school. I was a big nerd. So when I got there, um, I thought it wouldn't really be a problem, but I quickly also got, I, I quickly realized when I got there that the honor code was a little bit more strict than I expected. Um, and as a Catholic, they had me go to the honor code office a number of times, like my very first semester to go and meet with there was someone working in the honor code office, making sure that I knew all the rules, making sure that I was following them, kind of interviewing me. Mm. And it was intimidating because, you know, like I was saying, I was brand new, starting college. And here I'm just kind of, you know, being encouraged to follow these rules. And I know that they have a file on me. So it, I could tell that they took this very seriously and that I was in a place where things were different than where I grew up. You know, I was in a world that I really didn't understand. And I I so desperately wanted to fit in. I wanted to be a part of the group, but I knew that it, it just, it was a totally new community for me. Um, and so that first semester I went to a party, it was November and I was drinking that night and um, someone had prepared a drink for me and I drank it. And later that night, I was raped. Um, and I i don't know how in detail, <laughs> I don't wanna get too much in detail because I don't wanna trigger survivors that are listening, but I, I blacked out at a certain point because um, I think I was just so, like it, it was painful and I didn't wake up until the morning and, and I realized like, oh my goodness, what has happened? You know, like I, um, uh, even as a Catholic, 
I, you know, premarital sex was something that was very serious. And so I knew not only like, I, I, I didn't even have the words to know exactly what had happened, but I knew that something had just been taken from me. That was something that I was only saving for marriage, honestly, even as a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it was confusing. It was scary. I just remember feeling very frozen that day, just like kind of walking around the dorms after I got a ride back to the dorms and, um, feeling very like, I can't tell anyone about this, you know? Um, cause I already didn't feel really like I fit into the school and, um, I, I just, it, it was very jarring from a, a from the most physical sense, obviously. He, um, and I had heard stories from girls in my dorms. You know, other most of the girls in my dorm were Mormon. It was only me and my roommate who were Catholic. And so I had heard stories from girls in the dorm talking about, you know, girls getting in trouble if they reported their rapes and some of them getting expelled. And I knowing those stories in the back of my mind, I was like, I really can't say anything because I can't risk losing my, you know, my spot at BYU. Like I've worked to come here for 10 years, you know, college golf was my dream. I just couldn't risk it. And besides the fact that I couldn't even like put it into words, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just remember, um, I just remember going to like a corner in the dorm, I think the week after that and like writing in my own journal and um, just feeling very, like, I, I distinctly remember, like, that as, like, the beginning of my silence, just writing in my journal and being, like, something happened to me, and I don't even know, you know, like, I, I could barely even write about it, um, and it, what happened pretty quickly um, was that, like, the PTSD, like, compounded, you know, as a, uh, this was 16 years ago, so I can look back now and kind of like identify what has happened because I've done so much research. I've talked to so many survivors and experts and I can kind of see and identify what I was experiencing. And um, and now I can say that at that moment, the PTSD really compounded and I really started internalizing this silence and this, it felt like a big, dark secret that I had to hold and that I had to hide from everyone. And it started coming out in all these like, effects like I stopped sleeping you know I just couldn't sleep at all um and so I'd stay up all night like with anxiety couldn't sleep and then I would not be able to wake up for class because I hadn't slept all night and so I think that I I'm pretty sure I failed out of like my classes that first semester you know um because I just couldn't go to class anymore and you know that was um difficult because I had cared so much about my school. Um, but that was one of the side effects for me. Another thing that happened was, um, I started like, I, I just could, I couldn't really engage anymore on the golf team. Like I would go to the workouts and I just couldn't really be present, you know? And now I know that this is called disassociation. Mm-hmm. And so when your body is holding on to this memory of trauma and it, you're trying to kind of avoid it to protect yourself. But what ends up happening is you kind of separate from your own reality and the present moment. And so I started disassociating a lot. Um, and, and that was very difficult. And I, I, I remember going home for Thanksgiving and I still, I felt like I couldn't tell my parents because they had such high hopes for me at BYU with, you know, playing golf there and everything. And, um, 
I just, I, I, I really didn't know how to put it into words. I didn't know how to say I was raped because I was so afraid of the consequences. I was so afraid of losing my spot at BYU and everything that could go along with that because I had been drinking that night. Um, and so it was just, it, it, in my mind, it was almost just not even an option to speak about it, you know? Um, and I, for the next year, the PTSD just like kept getting worse. Like I was very nervous. If, you know, anyone would try to take me on a date, I would get very shaky and just like kind of, I, I, I really couldn't get close or intimate with anyone. Um, and I, I started some pretty destructive behaviors because I just didn't know what to do with all the feelings that were inside of me. And I didn't know how to cope with anything that was going on in my community. Hold on. I'm going to take a sip of water. Yeah. Yeah. So with the, with the, at the beginning when you were saying that you didn't want to trigger anybody, if it helps you to be able to share exactly what happened to be able to put words to it sometimes that helps other people I don't want it to be triggering to you but like when Dana had uh, mentioned in her story in the very beginning I don't know if you've listened to the stories but um, we we say things like rape we say things like molest we say things like you know sexual assault but but people don't really understand what that means they think totally. that there's just this word that we have that we use for this thing that happened to us. But when there's a lot of people that don't even know that they've been sexually assaulted or they've been raped until somebody else says, this is what happened to you. you t- yeah. You're telling me something that is rape, you know, mm-hmm. and I know that you already have the word for it, but some people don't really understand I mean, this is kind of, um, this is this is just dialogue back and forth, but I, I'm just letting you know that it's sa- it is safe to be able to tell that here if you want to, and that yeah. people have a disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast that lets them know that we're discussing very, very serious situations that can trigger them, and to be careful okay. about listening. Okay. So, um, yeah, we're not worried about language, we're not worried about um, suicidality, we're not worried about, you know... All the things that come along with this, because this is so important for us to tell people exactly what our experience is so that they can know that's actually what happened to me. And I never would have put rape to that to that experience, you know? Yeah, totally. But I want it to be up to you. I want you to decide if that's something that you feel safe doing. And if not, then that's okay. Okay. Yeah, I can go a little deeper into it. Um, So like I was mentioning, it was um, it was November. I was at a party, it was an off-campus party um, with some student athletes and there was a lot of drinking going on and someone prepared a drink for me. Um, And I was, you know, because I didn't drink that much in high school, I was already a lightweight. I really didn't know much about alcohol Mm -hmm. and I, someone made this drink for me and I didn't really know what was in it. Honestly, to this day, I don't know what was in that drink, but it made me feel very loopy and very out of it. And I went upstairs to try to find somewhere to go to sleep because I felt like I just wanted to go to sleep. Um, and one of the men at the party came up there and he started kissing me and like, he came into the room and he, like we had, I had met him before and he had been flirtatious with me and I was like, okay, like, you know, this, this man seems kind of cute. I don't mind if he kisses me, although I'm, you know, I was pretty tipsy, but like very drunk at that point. Um, and then he, um, he pulls a condom out of his jean pocket 
And this is like the detail that I remember very specifically. He pulled out the condom. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, no, you know, like, I don't want to do this. I don't know. And he just didn't listen. Um, and he got on top of me. And um, the last thing that I remember is his face staring down on me and it just hurting down there, you know, and I had never had anything penetrate me before. And so it was incredibly painful. And I think that's when I blocked out because I just couldn't handle the idea of what was happening. And I completely froze, you know, I, mm -hmm. it was like a mix of freezing and blacking out because after that, when I woke up in the morning, um, I looked to my right and there was just like blood on the bed, you know, mm -hmm. like a bloody condom, my blood from the, the experience. And it was just, you know, I just don't have any words almost, you know, that's, that's what happened. It was something that, um, I had never really expected, didn't know how to deal with and immediately just felt so shame, so ashamed of what had happened because I thought it was my fault, mm -hmm. you know, like, it's, it's it's even in the Catholic church, there's a lot of, there was a lot of teachings about, you know, premarital sex. And I thought, honestly, I remember, and the crazy thing is about this man, he didn't even speak English. He didn't know, he like, he couldn't pronounce my name. And the thing that I thought right after this happened was, am I supposed to marry this person? Because now they've taken this from me. Like, mm -hmm. is like, I was so naive that I had no comprehension of what this meant for my identity as a woman. And, um, yeah, it was, it, yeah. And it wasn't even until, it wasn't even until 16, 15 years later when I started making this film that I knew that most women freeze. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. Like for the next 10 years, 10, 12, I'm trying to think now. <laughs> um, that part of the freezing was huge for me because I thought that the freezing made it my fault somehow, mm -hmm. like, because I didn't fight him because I didn't do anything. And then like the combination of the freezing and the blacking out and waking up to the blood, it was just so traumatic and so devastating that I felt, you know, I, I can't say anything. Yeah. I can't, I couldn't even put in this into words. Do you think that he, was it this person that brought you the drink? Was it the same person? No, it was someone else at the party. But okay. they were friends. And mm -hmm. I, to this day, I can never really say. I just don't know what was in that drink. I don't know if it was like two or three shots of liquor. There could be something more, have been something more in there. I just, I can't really speculate. I just know it got me to a place where I was very far gone. Mm -hmm. But I mean. And it was just one yeah. drink, right? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes that's all it takes. It's just not one. Mm -hmm. I think um, what you were saying about freezing and, you know, not not running away that, that you, you know, you thought that this was your fault. I, I just want to reiterate that that's so common that so many people, um, I had an experience when I was a little girl and when I remembered it later in life, I thought the same thing. I had feelings of, I should have said something. I should have, you know, because I didn't say anything, it was my fault. And, um, you know, I think it's helpful for other people to hear you say that and to help them know that that's a very common response because our brains protect us, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And I, th I think what was so crazy about, like it, when I, 
when I internalized the silence, that was the strongest memory was the freezing. And I just never knew how to interpret it because it was in my body. It was a memory in my body of pain, pain and freezing and blacking out. And I just didn't know what to do with it. And so for so many years, that was the only way that I could even approach this memory that I I could, I couldn't even put words to it. Really. It was just this snapshot and experience in my mind, in my body, in, of, of trauma. Yeah. I just want you to know that you're not alone. And, uh, I think you probably know that you're not alone now because you've, you're making this film and you've talked, you've talked to so many survivors, but sometimes we just need to hear that it wasn't our fault, you know? So it wasn't your fault and none of it was your fault. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been amazing. I think what was so difficult about that experience, and I'll kind of go back into the story a little bit. Like, it when I decided that I couldn't report, that I couldn't tell when at BYU, that began a journey of silence that was, that compounded that event so much more than I could have ever imagined. Um, it, it just created this darkness inside of me, this PTSD, this anxiety. Um, and this was one of the, the, the worst that it got over the next year. You know, I started having nightmares, the PTSD. I would shake when I saw what, if a man was trying to take me out on a date because in my body, the memories were there remembering how I had blacked out, how I had frozen, how I had been raped, you know. And so that's all I knew of intimacy. That's all I knew. Um, and I, over the next year being at BYU, I had a really difficult time just getting close to anyone, you know, like I, I, I made some friends and I was in an apartment my sophomore year, but, um, I still, I, I just, this PTSD was growing inside of me and this is kind of when like the missionaries came by and, um, they promised me when they came in that day that if I was baptized, I could be healed from anything and that my family would join the church. And I was, I needed something, you know, I needed help so badly and I didn't know where to turn. And I thought, you know, I was a religious girl. I read the Bible. I was Catholic. Like I attended church and I thought, well, maybe this is a sign that I should join this church. Maybe this is my chance. This is my second chance at life. Because at that point, I, at that point, I really did, um, how do I say this? It's not like I ever committed, like I ever wanted to commit suicide, Mm -hmm. but I was at a point where I had no idea what to do with this pain inside of me. And so I thought the only thing that I could do was completely change my life and try something totally new and different to try to get it out, to try to just make it go away, you know? And then I remember talking to other, you know, some of my friends and missionaries and other people in my apartment complex. And they told me that, well, when you're baptized, um, you become new. And I was in a class with Brother Bot at the time. He's a very like famous teacher at BYU. And he, I went to go talk to him. I was like, oh, I'm getting baptized. And he was, he gave me the scripture about the atonement and how when you're baptized, the old creature dies and you come out as a new person. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, oh, that's exactly what I need. I need my old identity to die so I can be something new. 
mm-hmm. because I need all of that to go away. And so I, it, I know it, it sounds, you know, not very like rational thinking, but it was really the only option that I had at the time. I, because I hadn't told anyone I wasn't going into therapy. I had never reported to the police. I didn't, I, I, this was the product of the environment that I was in and the culture that I was in. So this is me getting baptized and I got baptized and I decided I was going to give the church like a, like my everything. Like I became very devoted. I followed all the rules, all the commandments. And honestly, I really believed it. You know, I, I still remember the day of my baptism. I was thinking, okay, when I go in that water, like everything that I experience is going to disappear. I'm going to be a totally new person. And I felt that fresh, clean feeling coming out of the water. I felt that beauty. I felt that because I believed it, you know, and there were so many people there who were supporting me. And I mean, it was crazy. I became kind of this like mini celebrity on campus because there's not a lot of non-Mormons at BYU. And so when someone becomes Mormon, people get very excited. And so I was getting a lot of attention for the first time, a lot of validation. And I think it really kind of contributed to this idea of, okay, like I'm making the right choice here. Like, this is what I need to be doing. This is the right path. And so I just completely dove in. I completely dove into everything. Um, and, you know, threw away all of my clothes, like my mini skirts, anything like that, you know, deleted all of my punk songs. I was really into like punk and the used and things like that. And I felt, oh, that's sinful now. Like, I can't do that. You know, so I basically changed everything in my life because I wanted to be the most obedient girl. And I wanted to get these blessings that were promised to me of, oh, I can have a new chance at life. And I want to give these blessings for my family because it had also been promised to me that if I was baptized that my family would join the church. So I was like, okay, if I am obedient, this will happen. Um, and um, where do I go next? <laughs> so um, after I was baptized, I I decided to go on a mission. I felt, and it was pretty fast. It was about a year after I'd been baptized. I was, I, I was, in the BYU library, I think reading a book about missions. And some people had told me, oh, you're such a sweet soul. You need to go on a mission. And so I was getting a lot of that kind of encouragement. And I was in a relationship at the time thinking of, you know, wanting to marry this person. But I felt guilt about my own past as a Catholic. And I thought, you know what, I need to go on a mission so I can become a better mother. And so that when I do get married, I will be a much better Mormon and I will be worthy of, you know, all of, of this life, of this Mormon family and Mormon husband that I want. Um, and so I decided to go on the mission. Um, I got called to the Philippines Quezon City Mission, um, went to the MTC. I remember as soon as I got there, I was placed in an area where there were like these murders happening at night and we were going out into this area where there are no street lamps, like barely any service. I didn't really have a cell phone. You know, my trainer had the cell phone, you know, which has like this little tiny flashlight. And we're walking through these forests in pitch black. And I started having PTSD because I heard in the local community that people were getting stabbed and murdered at night in these dark forests. And I, you know, it's like that PTSD came back, even though I, I had ever since I got baptized, I was trying really hard to repress the rape and just believe, oh, that's gone. You know, my, my mindset was if I was baptized, 
that rape is not a part of me anymore. It doesn't exist. I can completely move forward. But that's, I know now that that's not really how the brain works. That's not how trauma works. And so that's when a lot of the PTSD started coming back for me. And I started getting really shaky and nervous and just like almost having panic attacks out on these trips. And I told, um, I remember telling my mission president's wife about this and, you know, she was comforting, but at the same time, like a little dismissive, just kind of saying that I needed to resort to prayer and, you know, trusting my heavenly father, which is very common now that I'm making this movie. A lot of people, a lot of leaders in the church don't understand sexual trauma. They don't understand PTSD. And so it's incredibly common to be told um, you know, just pray about it. Read the Book of Mormon. You'll feel better. It's like almost like the Book of Mormon is this psychological cure-all for anything. And so I, you know, believe that. I trusted that. And so that's, those are like the earliest memories of my mission um, are having these panic attacks in the dark woods, worried that I was going to be raped or something or stabbed, you know, just these visceral memories in my body kind of coming up, but then, okay, I'm going to sing a hymn and I'm going to make this thought go away. And that's what I did. That's all I could do because there were no other resources. And I felt so lost for months, just missed my family. Couldn't, you know, obviously call them or anything. And, um, after a while, you know, I finally got a hang of the language. I got better about it all. Um, and I, then I loved being a missionary after about six, seven months, like after I could actually speak, like I really loved the Philippines and teaching the law of chastity was my favorite thing to teach because I thought, well, I'm here because I was baptized and I was saved from my rape. So I need to share that with all these people who are Catholic. Mm-hmm. So, um, came back from my mission. I taught at the MTC, um, was really excited to be an MTC teacher, just so devoted, um, After about a year of being at the MTC, teaching other missionaries, I started to feel this underlying nagging feeling that I wasn't happy and that I wasn't who I was supposed to be. And I was like, what is wrong with me? And I was so, I was still following the rules of the mission, basically. Like I was so devout, you know, and surrounded by missionaries. And so I left the MTC and I realized like, I need to start like kind of living life again. I need to try to have some fun. And I you know, I didn't really rebel from like a Mormon sense, but like in my own mind, I was rebelling because I was being less missionary like. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was kind of the first time I was like, are these rules like actually helping me or are they hurting me? Like, I can't tell. Like, is this working to take away all this trauma that I'm trying to take away? You know, and even at that time, I didn't even have the words to call it trauma because I, it was just that big, dark thing in my in my body, in my mind, that I just wanted to go away. Um, and so graduated BYU. Um, I was told by my bishop at the time that I think it was 23 or 24 when I graduated, and he told me that I needed to stay in a place that I was going to be surrounded by Mormons so I could find my husband. Mm. And he was like, I expect you to get married in the next 24 months. And so that's after I graduated, that was my focus. I knew I needed to find a husband and I moved up to Salt Lake. I was working at Goldman Sachs and, um, I was actually in an incredible ward. I would say that my memories in Salt Lake city and my singles wards there are my, some of my most fondest memories of the church. I met so many incredible people. The events were so fun. Everyone was so welcoming and just wonderful. Um, 
which made it even harder to then have a crisis of faith <laughs> because I loved the people in my ward so much. But after being in Salt Lake for a few years, I started realizing that I had questions. And this was about like seven, eight years after the rape and I still couldn't date. Like anytime a guy would try to take me on a date, I could not barely let them kiss me. I didn't want them to get close to me. I'd get shaky. I could never be comfortable with my own sexuality or my body because I felt so... It just there was so much trauma and darkness inside of me. Um, I had these directives from these bishops telling me, you have to get married, and yet my body can't even get near to anyone because I'm so traumatized and I can't even put words to it. So it was a very difficult situation to be in. And after so many years of that, I just kind of realized like something is wrong. Mm -hmm. Like I can't live like this anymore. Like I can't be forcing myself, pushing myself to find my Mormon husband. Why is my body shaking when someone tries to kiss me? And this was 10 years after the rape, you know, at this point where I had not even acknowledged the rape. I had not confronted it. And by this time I realized, you know what, I've been Mormon for, for this long. I feel like I don't have my personality anymore. I started asking questions. This is around the time that John Devlin and Kate Kelly were both excommunicated from the church. And this made me ask a lot more questions. And the church came out with the history that Joseph Smith officially had, I think over 40 wives and just all of that compounded together. And knowing, finally confronting, saying to myself, that was rape. Yeah. You know, and it was, I think it was when that Joseph Smith um, historical thing came out, actually, when I saw that he had been married to so many women and that some of them were very young, you know, I just didn't feel instinctively, I didn't intuitively, I just didn't feel good about it. I just did not feel comfortable with the fact that there was this one man who had so many wives and I was like, I can't believe, I can't, I don't feel like all of those were of the women's choice. You know, I can't say I'm not a historian. I'm not going to say like what exactly happened. And I've spoken with many historians who have one opinion or the other about this, but intuitively something didn't feel right about him having so many wives. And it triggered this response in me to think back to my sexual assault and my own rape, to be totally honest. And so that's when I really started to think like, oh my God, I was raped my freshman year at BYU and I've been ignoring it this whole time. And now this prophet who I've believed in for so many years had 40 wives, which I don't feel that they were all consensual marriages. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that means, but it doesn't feel right anymore. And so um, I decided to leave the church and it was devastating. I loved my time in the community. It was so difficult to leave. Um, but... I decided that I was going to confront the rape. And I remember starting to write a lot at that time. And I was, and I wrote down in my journal, I remember saying like, I'm going to take a whole year and I'm going to focus on this. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to confront this rape that happened to me and I'm going to do this. So that was kind of the beginning of my healing journey. That was in 2015. And it's, it, it took a long time to really unpack everything that I had experienced as a faithful Mormon because I had, become so good at repressing. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I went to therapy that first time, just even processing the fact that I was raped, processing the frozen 
the blacking out, all of that. And she helped me work through it. And I felt so, so guilty, you know, as many people do, um, who have any sexual feelings. Like anytime I had tried to masturbate in my twenties, I just felt like I was bringing all the shame onto me. So it was, I unpacked not only the shame from the rape, but also, you know, any sexual feelings at all. Like I, I almost like hated my body, you know, looking back, it's, it's just so sad, but that's how I felt. And I remember I would, it, it was so difficult to work through all those feelings. And that year of therapy was really confronting the rape and the deep shame that I had and the hatred that I had for my body that I was just holding on to internally. Yeah, I, I'll just interject there if you don't mind and just tell you again, I think so many people are going to identify with that because uh, especially in this this religious culture that we grew up in, there that's kind of the crux of everything was just deep shame around bodily functions, deep shame around sexuality, deep shame around something that is so normal. And they take that and they twist it so far that when you when you want to do something normal, like masturbate, which is a normal thing to do, you can't even find pleasure in that because it comes with so much shame. And then like you were saying, all the triggering. Um, and I was also going to mention, um, you've been talking a lot about how your body would react to things like when you were in the forest. And um, I don't know if you've read The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, you have. Okay. Yeah, that that book is such a phenomenal book about trauma and how it talks about how that's exactly what happens. Our bodies remember these events, even if our minds don't remember the details of them. And so when we get triggered, our bodies react as though it's happening again. And it doesn't know the difference between a memory and reality. And so you end up being in fight or flight all the time, every single time you get triggered. So, um, you know, I just want you to know, again, you're you're not alone. You are not alone in this. So many people, myself included, have experienced this. Yeah, I think you put that really well, too, how the body keeps the score, the body holds on to the memories. Because at the end of the day, that's also how I accessed my healing, was learning to trust my own body again. Because all of this deep shame and, you know, self-hatred that I had from these purity teachings... It was those moments of panic attacks and feeling shaky on going on dates for so many years and not being able to get rid of that. That's finally what led me to to to, to know something is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, so even though my mind and my will, you know, my de- my desire to be so spiritual, my goal was to repress that to make sure that I didn't feel any of that. But at the end of the day, my body was the one that informed me like this is something you have to deal with. You have to confront this. And so I feel incredibly grateful that, you know, in in a way that this is the way that our bodies are built, that we hold on to these memories. Because when you do start to confront them, when you do start to acknowledge what has happened, that's how you get through it. That's how you break through. And for me, I will be completely honest, because I had been so intensely suppressing these memories of sexual violence, it took me almost seven years to unpack and process and heal everything. And I can say 
it's only in the last like two years, which is 16 years after my rape that I've really fully healed. And, you know, that's, I would have never imagined that it would take like that long to really, but I had to, it, it was such a long journey, you know, mm-hmm. it was, it took, and, and I know that there's so many women, so many survivors who, you know, many people don't acknowledge things that they've been through until their thirties and forties, you know, and then it's a long journey. And I will, but I will say exactly. And I will say that I think, you know, I didn't want to go to therapy. I really didn't. I was very resistant. And I went to therapy for that year in Utah. And then I decided to move back to California, which was a totally new struggle in its own way. Um, but it was these, you know, when I decided to go to therapy, that was the thing that really helped me to heal because I started to learn these skills and these ways to cope with my own anxiety, not to pass it over to someone else, but to learn this is what I can do to help myself heal. Absolutely. Therapy is a gift, isn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> I've been in and out of therapy myself for the past five or six years. And yeah, I can attest. Um, you do learn some amazing skills. And that's one of the other reasons why I think it's problematic when the church, you know, kind of swinging back to your film that you're making the church likes to keep everything in house. <laughs> they want to deal with yeah. everything on the inside, and the problem is that they aren't therapists. They're not. They're not licensed, and um, they're certainly not trauma informed by any stretch of the imagination, and that causes further damage. Mm-hmm. It really does. Um, yeah. When I started this documentary, I quickly met a woman named Dr. Amber Corby Whiteley. She's a professor at the University of Utah. She's a therapist. And I went to interview her. And I distinctly remember the first time that I called her. And I told her my story. I told her why I was making this documentary and that I wanted to learn from her research. And the first, one of the first things she said to me was, well, it sounds like you have a lot of secondary trauma from your rape. You have secondary trauma from the things you learned in the church and from your experiences with bishops and church leaders. And when she said that and identified it and put it into words, it honestly changed my life because I never understood why, why could I not, you know, be normal? Right. You know? And so to have someone explain to me, okay, you have this event, this sexual violence, this crime that has been committed to you, And then when you don't talk about it and when it's dismissed by people that you tell, that you trust, that further contributes to the isolation, to the PTSD and to the mental health issues, to have her explain that to me in, you know, a very calm and logical manner, it changed everything for me. Because then I was finally able to go through and unpack what I had been through. And also, that was right before I started interviewing many survivors that are in my documentary so that I could understand and identify what they had been through. And it's incredibly common for a woman to report to her bishop because bishops, you know, as Mormon, you know, I didn't grow up in the Mormon church from from what I understand and I know to be true is that the bishops are the father of the ward. It's the, it's the person that you respect and you trust the most. And so when you have a problem, you go to your bishop, you know, and most women 
there, there's this sense of even distrust of the police and outside sources. I think that might be changing a little bit now with the younger generations. And since the Me Too movement has happened, mm -hmm. I'm hoping, but I know that there's still some that are particularly isolated and insulated within this structure. And so if you're a girl, and I've talked to so many survivors who have reported to their bishops, and the first thing that they're asked to do is repent. Ugh. And that's not trauma-informed. That's not the way that you handle someone who's just told you about sexual or domestic violence. That's going to make it even worse for them. And I spoke with Donna Kelly, who is, um, she was a Utah sex crimes prosecutor in Utah for over mm -hmm. 35 years. And she she had over 3,000 cases. And she said, she told me when I explained this to her that she had seen this in her cases, that it was very common. She said that bishops are not trauma-informed. They don't have an understanding of sexual or domestic violence or PTSD, so they can't identify the difference between a feeling of just having a crime committed against you. You know, they can't even identify that. And a lot of times women right. don't even know how to put it into words. But she said that, she said to me that when a survivor goes to someone and they report if the first interaction is negative, it's very likely that they will not report again and they will bury the experience mm -hmm. for at least 10 to 12 years. Oh. It's, and I found that to be common. Even many of the survivors that I've interviewed, many of the survivors that I've spoken to even this week with the trailer coming out, the number that I'm seeing the most is 10 to 12 years of women keeping it within themselves, not mm -hmm after speaking to their bishops and not seeking help for another 10 to 12 years after that, not starting therapy for another 10 to 12 years. And so unfortunately, this is a pattern of women knowing something is wrong, going to someone that they trust and love, and then having, you know, their trust betrayed because the system and the institution of the church does not have the correct policies and education and procedures in place to adequately address these problems. And you cannot have bishops telling women that it was their fault. Read the Book of Mormon. You need to right. repent. Like forgiveness. Like there's just a whole, and you know what? Some, I will say, some girls that I've heard from had good bishops and they were sensitive and they cared and they didn't ask them to read the miracle of forgiveness. They didn't ask them to repent. So it does happen and I don't want to make it seem like there aren't good bishops out there. But sure. the fact that institutionally there are policies that do not protect women who are reporting, that's a major problem because it's leading to so many women suppressing, not just repressing their sexual violence, but suppressing it consciously right. by saying, mm -hmm. okay, I just talked to this man that I trust the most in the world. Yep. He told me that it was my fault. So I'm going to read the book of Mormon and I'm not going to try to think about it. And then it gets buried. The sexual yep. violence, the PTSD from that sexual violence just becomes more compounded, isolated, and it grows within that person until 10 to 12 years later, it's too much and they can't deal with it anymore. Yeah, and then they're having breakdowns and it's affecting so many different facets of their lives. You know, you talked about, um, you, you said something about if the first interaction is negative, that, that, that then they suppress for 10 to 12 years because it's, it, it's, it's so much more than even just being negative. It's, it's re-traumatization when they're not believed. And I think actually, <clears throat> excuse me, 
I think actually Kendra uh, posted something about this a while back in which she said sometimes when a victim comes forward and is met with negativity and is not believed, that that trauma sometimes is almost worse than the original trauma because it's being traumatized all over again. It's being told, you know, we don't believe you. That's the message. Even if those aren't the, the overt words, that's the covert message that's heard by your brain and your heart. And then that immediately says, I'm not safe to speak. It's not safe because I'm not believed. And then many people, myself included, start engaging in self-doubt. You know, like, am I just misremembering things? Maybe it wasn't that bad. Am I just making a big deal out of this? Um, and it is. It all compounds and compounds, and it it just re-traumatizes, and it makes the situation so much worse. Exactly. Well, and the, I love the way that you put that. And again, Dr. Amber Corroby-Whiteley, she has a paper She's done extensive research. She's interviewed hundreds of survivors in the LDS faith specifically. And the way she put it to me was the re-victimization process that can happen with these bishop disclosures, right? So Absolutely. when women women are being re-victimized by their spiritual leaders, and it then so it's not only the sexual violence, the, the domestic violence, but then there's an added layer of spiritual violence where you've just opened your heart, something incredibly devastating. You've just opened your heart to your spiritual leader and they don't believe you. And so therefore it feels like God doesn't believe you. feels like God doesn't believe you. It feels like you're not worthy all because of this thing that happened to you that you did not want to happen. And so the the secondary trauma and the re-victimization that women are experiencing in the LDS faith is incredibly damaging and I've talked to a number of women who, again, like the, it, what, what I think a lot of people don't understand who maybe haven't experienced sexual or domestic violence or any kind of crime committed against them is the effects that the PTSD have on da- daily life, you yes. know? And I think the cost, the, the cost of, of survivors living with this in silence is so much more than people understand. And you have to ask yourself, you know, I think that there are some statistics out there. I don't know them off the top of my head, but the the cost of going to therapy, the yes. cost of, you know, not going after, you know, the, the, the lesser confidence that you have, not going after to live the life that you want because you don't believe yourself anymore. You don't even trust your own memories. You don't trust yourself because the person that, and the religion that you trust the most in the world doesn't believe you. You know, there's an incredibly high cost to this. And I think that, unfortunately, what we see in Utah specifically is it's already a state that is incredibly difficult for women. It's at the lower rankings of so many statistics for women that it's abhorrent. I think it's number three or four in the whole country for ranking for women committing suicide. It's either, it's in the top it's either 49 or 50 for the wage gap, for equality. You know, women do not have a position of power in Utah. The Utah legislature is 90% men. Mm-hmm. You know, the women do not already have a voice in Utah. And so to, 
To know then that the rates of sexual and domestic violence are higher in the state of Utah than the rest of the country, compounded with all these other issues that they're not getting paid the same, they're not getting access to higher education or even education at all, they're not getting access to you know, higher paying jobs where they could empower themselves to leave these marriages that are unsafe. They're not empowered to seek careers that would make them independent and free thinking. You know, it's all of this together, which is why, you know, th this documentary, what, what I explore in this documentary, basically, and what I did not expect to find. When I started this documentary, I thought that it was going to be really just about BYU and what I had experienced there and what I discovered there with the many other BYU survivors. But when I kept digging and I met, sorry, a sex crime detective, mm -hmm. um, multiple attorneys, nurse, a nurse at BYU, she's a researcher there, and multiple journalists who all confirmed these high rates of sexual domestic violence in Utah. And it's what is also unfortunate about it is that many women in Utah don't even know this. They don't even have access to the information that these, you know, of this public health issue that the rates of sexual and domestic violence are higher in Utah than the rest of the country. And so how are women supposed to escape this silence if they're only going to their bishops, mm -hmm. their bishops are leading them to repent, leading them to be isolated in their own, you know, the trove of repentance. And then they don't have access to the information to know that they're part of a much bigger problem. And that's why I'm hoping, you know, my goal with this documentary is to create this knowledge and awareness and to spread the news that this is what is happening in Utah and it's not okay. You know, it's 2022 in America. Mm -hmm. We should not be having women experience something like this, especially in a state which I will say this, I love Utah. Utah is beautiful. It's incredible. It has one of the top economies in the country. They have the financial resources to focus on this problem. And yet women are not prioritized and they're at the bottom of any type of priority list. It's just, you know, I just want to make my voice loud and clear there. It's not okay. It's just not okay. Yeah, you bring up some amazing points. Um, and I think that, you know, at least the way I see it is that one of the things that's so sinister about this, when you say that they don't have the information, is that so many, you know, I'm talking about women just in the Mormon culture, we grew up in a patriarchal system that sent us so many messages that, you know, these messages are coupled with, you know, messages that the gospel is all about love and it's all about you know, eternal families. And, and it's kind of packaged in this really beautiful package on the outside. So much so that women, and I, I, this is myself included, I admit this growing up in the church, I didn't even know that I was oppressed. I didn't know that I didn't have a voice. I actually didn't think I needed a voice because I grew up in this system that told me that the priesthood leaders would do this for me. And so I was one of those people when, you know, Kate Kelly was, when that was all going on, um, I was still in the church at that time. And I, I admit 
I would have arguments with people and I was the one that was saying, you know, why do you feel like you have to have a voice? Why do you feel like you have to have the priesthood? This is the way it's supposed to be. You know, women are supposed to be women. The blinders that are put on you from birth are so thick and so tight that you almost, you just, I didn't even know they were on my eyes. I didn't know it until after I walked out. And so that's why I'm, I got so excited when I saw this trailer to your film because that's exactly what needs to happen. Women inside don't know what they don't know. And this is such an important message that you're trying to convey. It's it's a life-saving message, truly. Um, lives are lost over this. Mental health is lost over this. Um, you just mentioned things like... Um, the cost of everyday life, um, the cost of therapy. And, you know, really there's a lot of people out there that don't have access to that stuff. They, they, they can't even access therapy if they wanted it. The costs are so deep. They're so deep. And so many women just don't even know that, that, that it's going on. Yeah. Well, and what is so difficult also to see is the amount of silencing that happens like like you just described from when the time that you were a little girl growing up in the church you're told that we're you know we're told that women are valuable women are important we're not going to learn about heavenly mother because it's too special and right. so you have like these women elevated on a pedestal and at the same time you're also told you can't have the priesthood you know your your husband is going to be the provider if you get a job like okay maybe mm -hmm. we'll accept you but you're going to have all these cultural factors of women in your ward who are just raising children why are you working why are you mm -hmm. pursuing something so there's all these cultural signals that are telling you you need to stay home and have children and have as many as you can because that's your spiritual purpose and you know what i will say this when I was really active in the church, it felt really good to feel mm -hmm. like I was living my spiritual purpose as a woman. I felt like I was doing the best I could to find a husband and to become a Mormon mother. And I felt a sense of confidence about that. But looking back, I didn't have my own voice. I didn't right. have independence. I didn't even have barely a personality because I was so... I was pushing myself so hard to try to fit into this mold that just wasn't me, you know? Yeah. And that's what I find so devastating about even hearing you say that you didn't want to have a voice, right? you know? Because as human beings, whether we're men or women, every human being deserves a chance to speak up and to express their thoughts, to feel. And if you're told from the time you're born that you, it doesn't really matter because someone else is going to tell you what to think. It just, I can't imagine a more like level of spiritual violence compounded with all this sexual and domestic violence. It's just incredibly damaging. Mm -hmm. Something that kind of came up a couple of years ago, I pulled up an article, it was from January of 2020, when um, the Utah State Health Department was trying to help people to... Um, 
to encourage people to use condoms because Utah has a very high rate of syphilis. Um, you know, it's like 43rd in the, in the nation for, for syphilis, you know, I mean, seriously. And then a lot of chlamydia, a lot of issues with STDs, partly because what you guys were talking about is keeping people in the dark. Um, our teenagers do not get a good sex education in Utah and, um, parents are terrified of letting their kids learn about sex not just learning about safe sex and learning about how to protect themselves, but just this idea that they are going to be taught about sex outside of the home when this is something that's a, that's a family matter or a church matter. But these kids do not get taught about sex. So this, um, this uh, thing with the Utah State Health Department, it was um, uh, these condoms that had the wrappers on them that um, were Utah-themed con uh, condoms, and they say like things like, greatest sex on earth, and um, this is the place. And then there's another one that has the like a street sign on that says, Fillmore Beaver. Um, <laughs> another one that says, SL colon UT, Salt Lake, Utah. Um, so it spells slut. And then explore wow. another one that says explore Utah's caves. And a lot of people thought it was hilarious. You know, I mean, they're trying to get people to use uh, condoms. They're trying to decrease the amount of STDs in the state. But then um, Governor Herbert came out and said that these they, they were going away. He canceled all the these condoms. So a new condom came out that said, don't make more Herberts. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think it's actually a perfect example of of um, how the the programs and the leadership and the government can affect these issues because Governor Herbert is actually someone who declared pornography to be a statewide health epidemic in Utah because Utah is the number one state for pornography problems because of all the repressed sexuality. Um, you know, and when I discovered that, my first question, well, why isn't sexual and domestic violence considered to be a statewide health problem? Mm -hmm. Why isn't that considered to be the epidemic? You know, we have women who are experiencing this and this violence isn't being acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And there are many times, I, th you know, I think Spencer Cox is a little bit more open, a little bit, I don't know completely, <laughs> but it frustrated me beyond belief to see Governor Herbert talk constantly about how Utah is the best. Utah is number one in almost everything rankings in the country. And in my mind, I'm just like, you're not even acknowledging what women are experiencing in this state as if it doesn't matter, mm -hmm. you know? And when that's the signaling coming from the leader of your state yeah. and so many Mormon women look to the Republican party in Utah and look to the legislature, they're not going to question them either. You know, and a lot of those men are priesthood leaders, they're mm -hmm. bishops, they're state presidents and they have the priesthood, you know? And so it's again, another layer of leaders telling women in the state of Utah that they don't matter. Mm -hmm. They don't have a voice and they don't really care. That's true. You know? That's true. It's not that just that they don't care. They will participate and be complicit in covering it up. Mm -hmm. And this is the, where the silencing comes in. Because in a healthy community, you can talk about sexual issues. You can talk about the condoms. You can talk about STDs. You can talk about bills that cover strangulation. Like I talked to a number of Utah politicians and the, you know, the the uphill battle that they cover 
every time they bring a bill regarding sexuality to the Utah legislature mm-hmm. because so many people don't even want to talk about the fact that sex exists outside of marriage. And if that's your basic you know, viewpoint, as if that's your worldview, and as a government leader, and you don't want to acknowledge these other things, that's very difficult for these honest conversations in the legislature to happen. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. And that's one of my goals with the impact program of this film, actually, is to be able to reach Utah legislatures to the point where they can't ignore these rates of high sexual domestic violence anymore. You know, I'm not going to let them because it's just not okay. Again, it's 2022. You know, this is not The Handmaid's Tale. This is America. Um, and women deserve to have a voice and they deserve to be respected. And I'm just going off a little bit now. Do it. <laughs> we do it all the time. So, you know. <laughs> no, it's all, it's, it, you're exactly right. It's fantastic information um, because it, 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 like you say, it goes to show how deep the church's claws go into everyday society, right? It's not just the church. It's just that they, it's, they, they've infiltrated the government and they've infiltrated, you know, Kendra and I talk about this all the time. She and I are both in the healthcare field. And we've talked about how that has impacted and infiltrated the healthcare field, too, um, in, as far as leadership goes. And it absolutely makes a difference. It's a public health issue, yeah. you know, when they're not acknowledging these statistics. Yeah. And that's why in my film, I have intentionally been as journalistic as possible. This is all based on research from experts because I want to present facts, data, statistics, you know, things that, and, and I've, I've gotten a little bit of backlash even this week. Actually, um, someone from my mission wrote to me on my wall on Facebook and they said, you know, Elena, I wish that you had just talked to the people that you were involved with, with your sexual assault, instead of trying to blame the entire state of Utah for what happened to you and trying to blame all the good members of the church who are sometimes imperfect. And when I read this message, you know, I wrote back to her and I said, my intention is not to blame the people of Utah. I'm not trying to say that it's your fault. I know you have lived a life of service in the church. But what I'm trying to do is just get this information out there so women can understand that they're at risk in Utah and that they can know that they're not alone. And I think that's also one of the aspects that makes something like this, you know, it's got to be a big cultural shift because Mm -hmm. like that note kind of prescribed, you know, if you don't want to believe that the rates of sexual domestic violence are higher in the state of Utah than the rest of the country, then you don't want to see it. You don't want to hear it. You don't want to, you're going to try to come up with other excuses. But unfortunately, the reality is, is that these are statistics and they should be out in the public. And women do deserve to be aware of this problem. They do deserve to know, because even if you aren't a victim, you probably have a friend who is. And if someone comes to you, you should be able to know to say to your friend who's disclosing to you the rates of sexual and domestic violence are higher in this state and let's get you some help. Let's help you report. Let's help you to try to find solutions, resources, and healing to this problem. And that's my entire intention and goal with this. A lot of people say, well, oh, 
you know, I'm, my intention again is not to tear the church down. That's not something that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make it safer. I'm hoping that there will be some people in the church, maybe of the younger generation, maybe some of the people who are a little bit more progressive, who will listen to this information and to the studies and to the data and say, we want to create change from the inside. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my goals. And I want to do, I want to connect with those people with positivity. And I think that, um, I, I hope that's something that happens. You know, I think you have a, I think your intention is amazing. And we've seen this in the past that the church, although they are very slow about it, they do make subtle changes based on social pressure. We've seen this over and over again. It takes them a long time. It's very delayed, but as information comes out and information and facts and statistics are presented, they reach a point where they cannot deny any longer and they have to make changes. And again, they're subtle, they're small, but you're, you know, you, you're right about this next generation. Um, We've been talking about this. I've been talking about it with several people recently that, I don't think this next generation is going to stand for a lot of this. I think a lot of them are really waking up to what's going on and they're just not having it anymore. They just aren't. Also going back to something you said about the person who wrote on your Facebook wall, you know, when that person said, I wish you had just, I I think you said, I wish that you had just addressed this with the people in that, you know, in your circle that it had happened with that is that exactly right there is the whole message of silencing you know that's it right there it's the same thing people hear leaving the church when they say well you because i've been told this too you know you left the church but you can't leave it alone there's just this whole culture of silence we don't talk about anything we don't address anything and if we don't talk about it it either doesn't exist or it's going to go away. Exactly. And, and I think that that's why what you're doing is so incredible because you're just bringing to light very factual information. And I, I, I have to say, I've, I was so impressed just with this trailer. I watched the long one, the 10 minute trailer you have online. I'm so impressed with just how professionally it was done. And with so much credibility, there was no, there was no, trash talking is very professional and very factual. And um, you're right. I think you're going to get more of an audience that way, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, like I said, it's not my intention to disparage the church. It's, it's, it's my, my intention is to spotlight these issues of women being silenced and to spotlight the facts that sexual domestic violence is higher in the state of Utah than the rest of the country. And, Um, You know, I understand the perspective of true believing Mormons not wanting to look at this information. I understand that because I lived it. I was there. So I understand. Exactly. We understand that mindset of not wanting to see the bad things because when you're so active, your whole life is centered around, I want to share the gospel. I want to share the positive things about my faith to bring people into it. And if that's your entire goal, you don't want to talk anything bad about your church because that's not going to entice people to come in. And I think that's inherently is one of the issues is this hyper focus on positivity in the LDS community and faith, which I did myself 
You know, mm-hmm. I was hyper positive about everything that I could be. And anytime I had a bad thought, read the Book of Mormon, pray, sing a hymn. You know, I loved it. That's That was my entire life for many years. And so I get it. I understand. And yet when you do take that step and you ask a question and you can say, what does this actually mean for the people in my life? You know, everybody has a friend who is a woman. Everyone has a mother, a sister, mm-hmm. a daughter, a wife. You know, there. Are, if I think if people can start to think of the women in their lives to understand what could possibly affect them in the state of Utah, that's maybe one way that we can reach people. And um, kind of what you were saying too, like, when I finally left the church and I started rediscovering and reclaiming my voice, this is what I wanted to say. Because I had been through so much that by the time that I left Utah, left the church, I'd been there for about 10, 11 years and I came back to California and this was seven years ago. I knew intuitively that I had been through something very different. And I thought, why doesn't anyone know about this? Mm -hmm. This does not seem right. It just doesn't seem right. And it took me years to even become confident in myself to speak these things. It took me years because I had so much programming in my mind that, of course, I don't need a voice. I don't deserve this. But the Mm -hmm. more that I pushed myself, the more that I put myself in uncomfortable situations, the more that I practiced, I, I gained my voice back. I gained my voice and, and this is how I want to use it. I want to use my voice to spotlight these issues so that other women don't have to go through it. I want to create that awareness. And it's what brings me, and it's why I have, I don't come at this from a place of disparagement or intense anger. Like there is anger within me. I think there's like a fierce protectiveness of Mm -hmm. survivors, the community of survivors and the women, there's a fierce protectiveness but I intentionally am very careful not to come off as anger towards the whole church because I know that's not going to be effective. So what I try to do is really, you know, deliver the information and, you know, this is what the information is. And if you want to learn about it, then great. And if that person is open to it, wonderful. If they're not, maybe it will come back to them at a different time. But there are a lot of people, even this week that I'm seeing that, mothers who are LDS active in the church who are writing me messages saying, I want a better future for my daughters. Mm-hmm. I got the chewed gum message and lesson, the licked cupcake, and I don't want this anymore. You know? And so I think that there are people in the middle, this kind of progressive, and even if they're not progressive, but they're open to a better future. 100%. And like I said, I think that, I think that group of people is growing. I really do. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I One of the things you said earlier was when you first started questioning kind of your beliefs and how it wasn't resonating with you anymore, you said something that I really picked up on, and it was that you didn't feel like yourself anymore. Um, and I think that's a really good point to make because unlike a lot of people, you didn't grow up in the church. And so you had this remembrance of who you were before you got into that. And I think that's a very valuable message for people and women in the church to hear because a lot of them, myself included, were raised in it. So we didn't have any idea 
who we were. This was our entire identity and coming out of it. And like you said, trying to find that voice, trying to understand that I'm even allowed to have a voice. A, that I have one. B, that I'm allowed to use it. Um, And you're right, it comes with practice. Um, But I just love that you shared that because I think it's important for women to know that you aren't who everybody told you you were. You are your own person. You are your own you have your own power. You just have to go inside and find it and find that voice. I, I just, I just love that you're using your voice this way. I love that you're, that you're disseminating this message. It's, it's just so incredibly important. Thank you. Well, and I think that what's so um, important to me as a filmmaker as a journalist, but also as a person, you know, a survivor making this for other survivors is knowing this journey. Like, I know that on the other end of people watching my film, that there I'm going to be reaching people who have not fully reclaimed their voice yet. And I want that to happen. I want women to see the process of reclaiming your voice. And I want them to be able to identify that was not okay. And mm-hmm. I can become who I really am and I can move on from these patriarchal rules that, you know, dictated my life. Um, And I think that like, you know, what is really meaningful to me, what I think about a lot, because I've worked on this film for about five years on my own. Um, I've kept it very, very private until this contest came out. And there were so many times where it was very difficult because I wanted to be able to talk to more people about it. You know, I wasn't public and it was difficult to do it on my own, but I'm also grateful for that time because it gave me so much time to think about how do I want to say these things? How do I want to approach this topic? And it gave me that time to reclaim my voice and to become who I really want to be, my true authentic self. And I, mm-hmm. my, my hope, my deepest hope is that also survivors and honestly anyone who has been through trauma who watches this film when it comes out, that they can see from the stories in it that they can speak about their trauma. It's okay to talk about it. You don't have to stuff it away into the darkest corner of your mind anymore. You can confront it because healing is possible and healing is beautiful. And when you get to the other side of that, it's an incredible feeling Mm -hmm. to know that it's behind you and that you've confronted it and that you've dealt with it. And I didn't have any concept of what that would feel like until I felt it. You know, I agree 100%. Once you find that and you discover what that what it feels like to live an authentic life, once you've processed that pain and trauma and you've recognized your own personality and your own desires and that you are who you are and even your own spirituality. Like I mm-hmm. would say that I'm a very spiritual person. I'm not religious anymore, but I have spiritual beliefs. And even mm-hmm. reclaiming that in my own life was a huge process because I had felt so betrayed by this religion that I loved, you know, mm-hmm. but now I'm, I can say I, I have faith in, in the beauty of the world. I have faith Mm -hmm. in humanity. I have faith in a higher power and I want other people to be able to live freely to express and to develop their own voices from their own journeys, you know? So that's kind of my thing. Yeah. It's a, what a beautiful message. Um, I concur. I I've kind of been on a similar journey in the last couple of years and you're absolutely categorically correct that I had no earthly idea 
what it would feel like to be on the other side of it all. I had no idea when you, you know, when you first come out of, you first starting to process trauma and you're coming out of the church and, and all of this, it feels scary and it feels uncertain. And when you lose something that was your whole identity, it makes you feel lost. And you're right. I just, I'm same thing. I want people to know that there's so much beauty on the other side of it. It's the, the elation and the true pure joy that I have felt after speaking up and after finding that voice and finding that self, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's mind numbing actually. Yeah. And I think what's so incredibly beautiful about it is that once you find that flow in your life, and I will be honest with the audience, it took me about 15 years after my rape for me to find that that feeling that I was living an authentic life, that I was feeling more healed, that I had my own beliefs, my own voice, my own spirituality, my own faith in, you know, the goodness of the world. And it took a long, long time, but the journey was worth it. And when I look back now, I have gratitude. You know, before there were so many times where I was angry and I was upset and I was still traumatized and they were very, like there was a time in my life when I came back to California after leaving the church where I I was so unable to put the words to my experience that all I could say was, I feel like this time in my life as a Mormon and repressing my rape was a black hole inside of my mind. That's the only way I could use to describe it. I couldn't even use the words sexual violence or spiritual violence or describe what had happened with the re-victimization. This has been a process of about seven years for me with the healing. And I want to be totally honest with the audience about that. It takes time and it takes effort and you're trying every day. And this is something, but when you, but going on this healing journey is worth it because it's your life that you're living for. You don't have to exist for someone else. You don't have to exist to be something for anyone else or for any group. You can honor your voice. You can honor yourself and the journey is worth it. Oh, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much for that. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, incredible message. And you're right. The journey is absolutely worth it. It's very, very painful at times. It requires you to, to, to really, like you say, to acknowledge those things. I think, I think a lot of times people don't even realize that the things that have happened to them constitute trauma. They don't even have the knowledge to know that what I experienced is considered trauma. And so it, it even takes just figuring that out and admitting that to begin with before you can even kind of move on from there. So yeah, just, I would say to people, give yourself a lot of grace and be kind to yourself. Um, it's, you're right. It's, it's a tough journey and it's long, but it is so, so, so worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, one of the things that I had to even realize, you know, like we were kind of talking about before when you're in the church and you're learning about the role of a woman, unlearning some of that was also kind of a part of the journey of finding my voice. Because like you were saying, it's like, 
I wasn't sure that I should have a voice. I wasn't sure what I wanted to say. You know, and I was always someone who was active in the classes and I was always bearing my testimony. So I had a voice, a version of myself that existed in the Mormon context where I was speaking up, I was bearing my testimony, you know, saying all the right things as a good Mormon girl would do. You know, I knew how to be a good Mormon girl. And then after leaving and you have this like blank slate it can feel so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I will say that like what really helped me in the last few years was meditation, going to nature and going to therapy and then allowing my body, you know, coming back to the body, allowing my body and my intuition to develop and to trust my intuition. Oh yeah. Because what was so difficult, I think one of the most painful things about this whole experience was denying my own intuition denying my own self, you know, because that it's, it's such a, it's such a deep pain when you are suppressing your own self and you don't even know it. And for so many years, I didn't even know it. I couldn't have words for it. It just, yeah. It's a wound. It's, it's a wound. And every time you deny yourself, you're just, it's like reopening that wound. And yet you don't even realize that you're doing it. Like you said, um, you know, Kendra and I are friends and we, we actually talk about this very thing a lot, this, this concept of self-trust and self, you know, trusting your own intuition. And one of the things I've said to her and I've said to other people is just that it was, it was a very eye-opening and also painful moment when I kind of woke up one day and figured out that my inner knowing, you can call it whatever you want, in your, your higher self, your inner knowing, your intuition, when I figured out that she had never left me, but that I had spent my whole life silencing her. And yet, despite the fact that I had silenced her and pushed her down and repressed her, that she never, ever, ever gave up on me. Because when I finally did start to find that voice and I let her come out, so life-changing. I would say to people, if you feel like you don't have a voice, when you finally find it, you will be mind blown at figuring out who you are. And it's a beautiful process. Yeah. 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 That description, like, just brought me to tears. I feel so touched, so emotional by what you just described, because that's the inner intuition within all of us, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, finally, when you find your voice, you can get to that place where you do feel that's your own spiritual power. And it's not coming from anything external. It's not coming from any group. It's coming from within you. And you can't even, you can't, be obedient enough to earn it because that's not how it works. It just exists. Your inner spiritual self, your inner power, your inner divine feminine self just Mm -hmm. exists. And there's nothing, no rule that you have to follow to make that, to make that be, it just is. And that's the beauty of it is that you can always come back to it. You can always feel connected. And I feel like one of the things that you know, in the church that I loved so much was the family history. I loved the idea of doing work for my ancestors, doing work for, you know, in the temple, all of this. I was obsessed with it. I just loved it. And after I left the church, that was something that, you know, I, I did not know how to confront that 
now that I, when I left the church and I was like, I don't believe in God, God just hurt me through mm-hmm. this church. Um, how I didn't even have a concept of trying to have a connection with my grandparents who had passed away, you know, right. and then going through my own journey the last two years and realizing, wait, you know what, like you were saying, that though your my family can never leave me no matter what I do my higher self can never leave me it always exists and it's just a matter of what I'm open to you know like your life changes so drastically once that can happen and mm-hmm. I will say too that like a lot of times when I'm making this film I think about all of like the women who have existed in the LDS community since it started Mm-hmm. for many, many years and who have endured this persecution and this silence and this patriarchal, you know, I think about them a lot because I think, what would they want me to say? What would they want me to do? How would they want me to represent what they experienced, what they didn't have a chance to do when they were alive, you know? And I think about that quite a bit. And even in preparing for this week, um, you know, it's it's a it's a strong motivation for me of thinking, how can I use the history of women in the LDS faith who have existed before me and who have cared so much about these issues and they wanted a voice? What would they say? What would they say to the next generation of women? And how can I say that? How can I deliver that message? You know, and so I try to always keep that in mind. It's so beautiful. What what a beautiful way to honor like you said all those people that went those women that went before the women that suffered the women that that unlike you and I never got the opportunity to find that voice they went to their graves never having found it and you know I'm not sure what your spiritual belief is at this point like you I'm very spiritual but I'm not religious at all i think I believe those women are rooting for us. I really do. I, I'm so much more connected to my grandmothers than I ever was when I was in the church. Um, when I was in the church, I always felt like, well, I'll see them again someday. And now I'm so connected with them and I feel like they're with me all the time and they have been rooting for me on this journey. And I think these women are rooting for you to, to, because by, by by bringing this film to light and giving women this voice, you're giving them a voice too. You're giving them the voice that they never had. It's, well, yeah. it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I mean, I completely, I'm on the same page exactly. And I feel that same connection to my own grandmothers and the experiences. And, you know, even my, I have both of my grandmothers, one of them, she's 95 And one of them passed away when I was just a baby. And I often think about their life experiences, you know, um, how my grandmother grew up in the Great Depression and she didn't have access to a lot of the jobs that we as women have access to today. And I think about her constantly and I think about the wounds that she must have had when she Mm -hmm. was growing up and she wanted to have a voice and it was difficult for her. And, And I think a part of my work now is trying to heal that. You know, and that's why I try to always approach this through this avenue of healing because that's what we're doing. It, um, and and I think about my my other Italian grandmother who um, I think she also experienced a lot where she didn't have a voice in her community and she was a brand new immigrant to this country and she but she loved French and she was a French teacher and so she mm. did her best to create her own 
identity and, and she was, you know, loved grammar and she was an English teacher as well. And so she like was very specific in her interests. Um, and yes, I think about, I think about them all the time because it, in a way it is honoring them, you know, honoring what they couldn't do mm-hmm. and what can I give back? How can I show that I'm grateful for my time here so that I can create something bigger than myself, something beautiful that can help other women and heal other women. Oh, that makes me so emotional. Thank you for sharing that. I, I bet they're I bet they're so proud of you right now. I really do. Yeah. Thank you. That's really sweet. <laughs> um yeah, and I mean I think what is um what is really interesting too about like the pandemic, I think a lot of people had so much more time to spend at home thinking about their spirituality. I do have a good friend who recently left the church during the pandemic, one of my best friends from college. And she recently reached out to me and, you know, she had a lot more time to do investigating at home. And, and I think she's going through that process of the anger, the grief, the pain of losing her community. And, and I think a lot of people in your audience I'm sure I've had a lot of time to think about what do they believe? What is, what does my LDS experience mean to me? And that's the thing you can decide that, you know, Mm -hmm. we're not, that's not even the point of this film. I'm not here to tell you that your Mormon beliefs were wrong. I'm here to deliver this information so that you can make your own decisions and empower you, you know? And I think that like, I'm hoping you know, when the film comes out, which we're trying to finish it by next year, hopefully the momentum from this um, voting and everything and this online, you know, momentum that we've gathered will really empower us to finish it quickly so that we can release it. But I'm just really hoping that it can reach people in a way to help them process their life experiences to heal and to give survivors a voice. You know, at the end of the day, I want this film to give survivors and women in Utah a voice. And that is so important to me. You know, I you're I think you're already doing it. I mean, just like you say, the momentum from just putting this trailer out in the last week. I mean, you've had how many people reach out to you? I've you know, in sharing on my own social media, I've also had people reach out to me and say, This happened to my sister, this happened to my cousin. They never spoke about it but now they've seen this trailer and now they think maybe they can come forward I've had two people tell me that just in the last two days so it's already making an impact and it hasn't even been released yet so please know that the work you're doing it's it's having an impact and it's it's reaching people Thank you so much. I'm so glad you shared that (laughs) because I've had a few messages that are kind of similar and I'm always like, I read them and I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is working, you know, like, because I've been doing this on my own for so long, it's still kind of hard to believe that this is now in the public. People know about it. And like, it's heartbreaking to hear from the women who 
a lot of times I'm hearing that women watch the trailer and then they're triggered because they feel it all come back to them. All those memories of trauma are coming back to them and it breaks my heart to know that that is happening. But then what they're here, what then they share their story and then they mm-hmm. say, I want to share my story now. And I've had a few women share their story on their Facebook because they've seen the trailer and then mm-hmm. they're going to seek therapy and they're going to start their healing process. And it's just incredible to go back to, to, to think of being in that moment again of, oh my gosh, I'm so raw in my trauma and yet I want to start the healing journey. And, but I'm seeing that happen a lot and I'm very grateful. Yes. Yeah. I've, I've been seeing it a lot this week too. And I've seen, I'm in several different Facebook groups and I've seen the tra- the trailer being posted in these Facebook groups multiple times. Um, and, you know, we appreciate you sharing your story here too, because when you're telling the whole story from the beginning of what happened to you until where you are now, it also gives people this whole picture that my trauma doesn't have to define me. I'm not what happened to me and that I can get to the point that Elena's at where I, I can not just have a voice, but I can feel powerful and strong. I think that's so important because so, so often when people are sitting with their traumas, it feels so impossible to get beyond them. If they, and a lot of people don't know where to start. And am I going to feel this way forever? And it's really scary to talk about it. So the more that other people talk about it, the more we shed light on it. I think every single time someone tells their story publicly, it gives other people the courage and the power to do the same. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really interesting point because if if you had told that girl that I was when I was 19 years old at BYU, had been raped, decided to be baptized, if you told her what I would be doing now, I don't know what I would have thought. You know, like I was so on this one track of I'm going to find my Mormon husband. I'm going to be Mormon my whole life. I'm going to have lots of children. Like that's all I wanted. And I just want to repress the rape. Like I don't want to think about it, you know, and but Mm -hmm. like what ended up happening was so different, you know, and I think that's something to also realize is like if you've been through sexual or domestic violence, there is a certain grace and healing that can affect you in your life. And be open to those surprises, be open to, to the healing. And you never know how it can start. You never know if it's going to be a friend in your life who has experienced something similar. You know, I have people close to me, very close to me who have experienced physical domestic violence. And so Mm -hmm. I, that's something that we share. And so that's something that like, I, we can relate to on that level. We can talk about the trauma we can talk about. And I understand different things that they're going through. And so it gives you a certain understanding and a certain connection with people. Never can I say that the sexual violence, I'm not saying that that's a gift. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that you take your experiences and you are in this moment and whatever opportunities come your way, you make the most of that and you make that moment the gift. And if you can learn to share your experiences to help someone else, then that sharing and that healing becomes the gift. We can never look back on these experiences and this trauma and say that it, you know, that was my Mormon way of thinking, repressing it, suppressing it. 
saying, oh, whatever, I don't care. Like it's in the past. That's not what I do anymore. I honor it for what it was, but I choose to say, this is what I'm doing about it. This is what Mm -hmm. I want to create with it. This is how I'm turning that energy into something new and different. And that's how I take my power back. Oh, I love that. That's so beautiful. And I, I, I resonate with that so much. Um, I, I experienced one of my traumas was just around childbirth trauma. And it's interesting because now I'm a, I'm a nurse and I work with birthing mothers. And so I, I so understand what you mean when you say you take that experience and help other people and that becomes your gift and your healing. And that's exactly the place that I've found healing is helping other mothers when they've experienced childbirth trauma, because you said something earlier that I thought was so profound in that, and I don't remember exactly how you said it, but the gist of it was that you have a unique voice in this journey because you've experienced this personally. And I think anytime we're talking to somebody about something, it's not that we have to have experienced it, but when you have, there's a level of connection there that just they just can't be there in any other way. And so I say that to people all the time, that that's how part been part of my healing from childbirth trauma is just helping other mothers. So I get, I get what you're saying hundred percent in this. I get it. It's, and it's, it is, it's a gift. If you, if you are of the mind to do it and not everybody is, and that's okay, but yeah, it can be a really beautiful thing. Well, and I think what's really interesting, um, about what you said is so a lot of the survivors that have been reaching out to me this week, when I read their messages, I will feel such an automatic connection to what they went through. You know, there's, I'm reading these words and yet I'm feeling so powerfully, Oh my gosh, I know what it feels like to go through this. I feel this so strongly, you know? And so it's, there's something, it's a bond that you have. And so that's, I think what is really interesting is the last seven years that I've spent in my life, healing from this, that was the gift for me, was this process of healing. And it was so difficult. It was very dark. I will say that there were so many times, you know, that I really didn't know how to face it, how to heal. There were so many times that I had unhealthy coping mechanisms, Mm -hmm. you know, and I could still had a tough time dating and getting into relationships. Luckily, I met my husband five years ago and he was very sensitive and compassionate. And I can't tell you how much that has helped me because he has never judged me once, you know, for anything that I needed to express. And being in a relationship like that has empowered me so much to have the freedom to heal, you know, mm-hmm. because I know that it's like he gets it in a way, you know, and that's when you have people, when you find people like that in your own healing journey, that's very important. I think whether it's your sister or your mother or your aunts or, you know, other friends that you have, or just a community online of people that you can talk to or a therapist, you know, whoever it is that you find in your life that you can go and talk to, that you can connect on these levels. And I will say too, when I met the survivors, who came out at BYU and who are in my documentary, that all changed. It really changed my life. When I interviewed those women and I heard them express what they had been through from the events to their feelings and to their healing journeys to seeing them become activists. Mm-hmm. I mean, there it, it was, 
I can't even describe how grateful I am for those experiences to be able to meet those women. And they honestly healed me. Them sharing their stories healed me and enabled me to finish this film and really get it to the point where it is today. And there is such power in that healing process if you're ready to do it. And, you know, I know that some of you in this audience might be thinking, but I just started, like, you know, I'm just now confronting my sexual abuse or my sexual violence or my domestic violence. And I know it's hard and it feels incredibly insurmountable. And you just to give yourself that patience and self-love. There's nothing wrong with you. You didn't do anything wrong. You just have to do the best you can every day and not every day is going to be perfect. You know, this healing journey takes a long time, but when you get through it, you will feel more empowered. You will feel more yourself. You will have your own voice. You will have more trust of your own intuition. And I can almost guarantee that you will have relationships in your life that reflect that new change and that new sense of self and being. And that's, again, an incredible feeling, an absolutely incredible feeling to be who you want to be because you chose it. Oh, yeah. So beautiful. Yep. And just making those connections, making the connections with other people. I say all the time, I think a good majority of healing is being seen, um, being validated, um, and knowing that you're not alone. And so, like I said, every time somebody speaks, people know they're not alone and it's one more thing. It's one more step in their own healing. Such a, such a, thank you so much. Just what a beautiful message you have. I'm, I'm so, I'm so excited to see where this film will go. I'm excited to see what else you do after that. Like, yeah. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have anything else that you wanted to share with us? Um, let me think. I mean, again, you know, I know, first of all, I know that like with the name of this podcast, Latter-day Survivors, it's a very specific audience. And I'm so happy that this community exists. I'm so happy that people are listening and that people are congregating on the internet to talk about these things. And in real life, you know, like it's really time for this stuff to come out. And it's, it's as this stuff comes out, each person can pursue their own healing journey. And there are plenty of resources out there. You know, there you can reach out to me, you could reach out to Christina or Kendra. You know, there's a lot of healing resources. You don't have to do this healing journey alone. You may have mm-hmm. experienced many years of silence, many years of isolation, but it does not need to be like that anymore because there are a lot of people who want this to change. We want to have a new experience in the world that we are spreading throughout the women of the LDS community, whether you're still there or whether you've left. We want all of you to have this opportunity to change and to heal and to and to go on this journey. And um Yeah, so I would just say, like, if you're just starting this journey, it's okay to feel a little unsure about what to do. It's going to feel a little funny at first. And little by little, it'll get easier. You're going to meet people that extend to you that compassion and love. You're going to feel that power and strength rise within you. It's not going to be as triggering. And I... I, I will say that, you know, even talking about my rape today on the podcast, it's still difficult. You know, it 
it's always yeah. something that you look back on and you can't ever say, oh, that was easy. You know, it's like, that's mm-hmm. one reason sometimes when I describe it, I gloss over the details because they still make me emotional, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. And that's not really something that ever like becomes easier, but I can do it now in a different way because I know there's a purpose to it and I have a higher goal and I have a vision of what I can take those experiences and use it for something else. And I also want to say too, there's a lot of people out there who might be thinking this perfectionist Mormon mindset. You don't have to be doing all the spreading of the healing if you're not ready. You don't have to do that. You don't have to become a therapist. You don't have to make a film about it. Just be you. That's all that you need to do. You don't have, you can't compare yourself. I know comparison is a huge problem mm-hmm. for LDS women. You know, it's mm-hmm. suffocating for many. Do not compare yourself to other women who are trying to heal from this or to, or try to be perfect. That's it's, those are old ways of thinking. And the new, the newer, better way of thinking as you go through this journey is to give yourself that grace, that compassion, that self-love and that forgiveness. Do not compare yourself and love yourself. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the new way that will help you to heal a little better from this. Um, what you had mentioned about uh, about when when you start sharing your story or when you um, meet other people that are that have ex- have a shared experience with you with trauma, um, I kind of have a theory, and maybe it's already been a theory, but um, that trauma sees trauma, and when when we come upon someone else who has that um, that deep pain and mistrust or whatever else that they're still processing somehow I think we're, we gravitate towards each other. And um, so when you were talking about people reaching out to you on Facebook and feeling that connection, that connection is absolutely real. And mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel so connected with the people who um, have come on the podcast, have uh, written out a story to put on the blog. And um, there's just something about having a survivor interview a survivor that creates um, healing and validation for both people, you know. I'm, I'm really glad for the work that you're doing, and I hope that we can continue to be a part of it. Um, so whatever you need from us, we'll, you know, we'll go right along and help with, help with whatever we can help with, okay? Thank you so much. It means so much to me, and I, I'm so grateful. It, it has meant so much to know that people care about this film and are feeling emotionally resonant with the survivor stories and, Mm -hmm. you know, have their own stories that they want to share. It means the world to me, you know, because I do see this as like, kind of like my life's work. Like I want, this is something I focus so much of my time on, Mm -hmm. you know, on my own. (laughs) And so it's really, it's been so special and rewarding to see the stories actually come out and see the light of day Mm -hmm. and to have that connection with so many survivors. It's Mm -hmm. just been truly beautiful and healing. And I hope, and I'm excited to keep that momentum going to finish the film, to release the film and to create that wave of change in -hmm. the culture. That is something that I truly, like want to see happen yeah absolutely i'm excited to see it thank you where where can people find you just in case they aren't following you yet yeah so i'm on instagram my name is kind of in hard to spell it's a-l-a-n-a Maiello, M-A-I-E-L-L-L-O, it's Italian. <laughs> but you can also just go to Chewed Gum Film on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok. 
the website is chewedgumdocumentary.com. You can message me on there. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just there, but the following the film will be helpful because then we can let you know when it's coming out and everything. Awesome. For sure. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us and sharing. Just, it's just such a beautiful message. You're a beautiful soul. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm so, I'm just really happy that both of you are focusing on this podcast and making it so specific to survivors. I just think that is so important, such important work that needs to be done specifically just focusing on that message. So and I'm so grateful that you're building an audience and that you're creating that change. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Latter-day Survivors. You can find us on our website at latterdaysurvivors.org, on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Latter-day Survivors, on Twitter at LD Survivors. We also want to recognize and share our appreciation for... Cody Francis for allowing us to use his touching song, It'll Be All Right, and hope that you will follow him too. As survivors of sexual assault, we wanted to provide a platform for survivors to share their stories. Many survivors of all types of abuse may be able to recognize and relate to the patterns of behavior in the victims, abusers, families, and friends of the stories shared by other survivors on this podcast. Often as we escape oppressive family, religious, and social constructs to a safer place where we come to see our abuse and all related issues, we are better able to process and begin to heal. We believe that when we share our stories with others, we can also help them to heal. It can take decades for survivors to find the courage to speak about these things. If it is so hard for adults, imagine how difficult it is for a child to speak up. We hope to normalize these discussions so that children can speak to adults earlier. As adults, we must listen and recognize the severity of the abuse, its potential consequences, and the need for action to stop the abuse as early as possible. Just knowing we are not alone, there are other people who have felt and do feel the same or have endured similar experiences in life can remind us that we are not alone in this. Nothing.